Welcome to the Cattle Call Podcast. Today we have our uh, research call with Sheila Berry. Uh, we just uh, had Sheila coming our last week in my career call. She shared a lot of nice information about her career, her work as an extension in the Bay Area, some challenge things that she had on working. She shared with us the experience of living as an exchange student a little bit, taking a PhD after a couple of years work as an extensionist. So I do recommend you going back and listening to Sheila's career call. And today we are going to record a research call with her to talk about some research that she did on her recent uh, PhD. Before we go ahead and call Sheila, let me go ahead and call Brooke Latek. Hello, Brooke. Hi, Pedro. How are you? Pretty good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. Okay. Is it a good time for a call? It's always a great time for a cattle call. Great, great. Uh, hello, Sheila. Hi, how are you? Good, good. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Thank you again for uh, accepting our invitation and be here uh, with us again. So today we're going to talk about some of your research, and I think Brooke has a couple of questions to get started. Yep. Uh, so last week we talked we kind of touched on your research, but now we're going to dive a little bit more into it, uh, specifically some work you did with your PhD, looking at um, range to feed contributing to sustainable beef production and conservation. So could you just start out and just tell us a little bit about the project and how you came up with the idea to do it? Yes, so I, I mean, I think best if I provide, provide an example. And that is, um, so next to the Santa Cruz Harbor, there's a small plot of land. It's about 17 acres. Um, so this is, you know, in the, not that, right, really in the heart of Santa Cruz. And this particular land has some of the last population of an endangered plant, the Santa Cruz tar plant. And it had been grazed over the years, and there were generally hundreds of thousands of these plants in the field. Well, you know, with development and so forth in the area, it just didn't make sense. And, and I think, frankly, people were concerned about also sort of protecting the area. So the livestock were removed. And over time, and it, and it was, you know, still accessed by the public, but over time, the population started to decline to to where they were barely seeing any plants at all. And so the conservation community worked at trying to mow it and rake up the thatch because it was a lot of grass. And they realized that that's really hard to do. And it's something that they would have to do every year. I mean, it doesn't just, you just don't do it once and it goes away. You need to maintain it. And so they brought, they decided that, you know, as much as they didn't, I think, generally like the idea of using grazing, they brought in cattle. It required them to put in some infrastructure, some fencing and so forth. And this site um, supported just a handful of, of uh, cattle. Um, like, I mean, it's, they started with just six black Angus cows in 2015. And what, what sort of intrigues me about this is the idea that the ranching is what's gonna pay for this. 
because they're not paying this rancher to graze this 17 acres. Um, you know, so the idea is, is that somehow he's going to be able to make money from these animals to be able to put them out there, manage them. And in this case, even had to deal with a whole bunch of fence cutting initially because I think people got cut off from the way they used to access the property and so forth. Um, and so, you know, then my, the thought was, what is this production system that these ranchers are contributing to and benefiting from in terms of being paid for that enables them to manage grazing for conservation. So in this case, you know, maybe he's not grazing there all the time. He's not, those cows aren't going to be there year round. They're going to be there seasonally. They've got to go somewhere else. What enables him to do that? And, and he, like many of our producers, smaller producers, you know, utilizes sale yards, for example. And so I wanted to look more closely at what, what where do our cattle go in California when they are on range? What enables our ranchers to be able to move cattle from range and um, when they need to because of there's no feed, the, the, the feed quality isn't there or, you know, there's not enough um, and um, or they need to keep feed for the next season. So that was the that was behind, you know, the the idea of how, why I would why I wanted to study this. And, and, and also then I think it has implications, obviously, to how we keep ranchers sustainable. Great. That's really interesting. So could you tell us um, specifically about uh, what you did in the study and what you found out from your research? Yeah. So one of the challenges we have is really, and, 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 and this is, I'd say, universal, is how we count cows. How, how do we count them? When do we count them? You know, they're not, they're not stationary. They don't, they don't, um, you know, if we're, if we're raising them like, a, a, you know, generally we'll talk about things in, in terms of a year, but we don't have any that really are finished within a year. So we have multiple classes over years. So it's, it's challenging to count them. We also have similarity problem with counting the acres that we graze. It's not like a defined farm field where we know exactly how many acres. So getting at this sort of information continues to be a challenge, um, but that's sort of what I was looking for was how can we look at, you know, wh where we have cattle in the state we have things like the, the, like the census report, which um, I looked at, but I also got access to um, data from the livestock ID. So when cattle are branded, um, well, not when just when cattle are branded, but when cattle, uh, the, 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 the Bureau of Livestock ID, they use brands as one form of identification, but, they're, but they need to inspect cattle whenever they are moved when they are moved out of state, when they are moved into another system, like they're moved from the to a feed yard or to a processing facility, if they're just moved within a pasture in California, then they're not inspected. So we don't have good data there. But I was able to look at that data. And, and, and it also, of course, includes dairy cattle. So I had to segregate the cattle from the dairy cattle from it. But I was able to use that data to sort of get a handle at where beef cattle were in the state 
when they were being moved from grazing lands and um, where, where in some cases they were being moved to. And so that's the, the crux of the sort of data set. But then I also included with that some interviews. I interviewed um, and specifically I went to feeder sales and then I made notes of who was at these feeder sales, who was selling. And then I would interview them afterwards and ask them why they were selling their cattle at that feeder sale. You know, what was it that drove them to be there? Um, and then, you know, that time of year. Um, and then also interviewed a couple of cattle buyers and, um, and then also did some survey of, of our producers, smaller producers about why they were either marketing at a livestock auction or selling direct. So did you, did you learn anything that surprised you from this research? Anything that really jumped out at you? Well, I think, you know, maybe it was uh, putting numbers to ideas that I had. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, one thing that struck me is, you know, we do clearly have beef cattle, you know, doing some grazing in every county in the state, with the exception, I would say, of San Francisco, um, which is mostly a city, book, almost completely city, state, city, county. Um, the, the, what the, the, the clear seasonal mark of when cattle are moved, I, I guess I wasn't maybe expecting it to be so, so clear. So we have over 500,000 head of our, our, that's our calf crop. That's 47% of our calf crop leaving California rangelands to either go to new pastures or feed yards in, in a 12 week period. There's wow. another surge that's in the fall where about 18% of them move. So we have these two seasonal blips, but it's really strong signal. And it's really clear when you compare that to dairy, which is you know just all through the year they're being moved from dairies to feed yards or to processing, so. So Sheila, can you just mention that again? Uh, how many like calf crop in, in which window that, that first one? So that... It's 500,000, about 500,000, over 500,000 head, which is 47% of the calf crop. And they're leaving in 12 weeks. So that is in a period of, uh, I'm not sure when it starts, April, let me see. In the in the spring, the spring. So the spring, the spring time. Three months of the springtime. We have forty. Yeah, the the peak is in June. Uh huh. Uh -huh. Wow, that's interesting. And where? So are they moving in state, out of state, everywhere? It's a it's a little hard to say where they're where they are moving because a lot of them are moved through a sale yard, and we don't have records of where they move through a sale yard other than I know from being at the feeder sales that a lot of them are going, they're either going generally to grass, if, the, if it's earlier in the, that 12 week period, then they're going generally to grass. Later in that period, they're going directly to a feed yard from, um, from the, um, yeah, from the, from the, from the sales yard, but then a lot of them are go are going directly on feed, which is generally out of state, mm -hmm. um, or on grass out of state in some cases. So 
it's a little hard to tell exactly other than you can kind of know by where they're going. Mm-hmm. You know, like if we have a lot of if, uh, the cattle that are going to Oregon, for example, uh, I assume most of them, there are some feed yards there, but most of them are going to grass. So you, you mentioned um, when you were talking about, you know, teasing out all of this data, you mentioned there's, uh, you know, some issues just with getting rid of the dairy, getting that out of the way and stuff like that. Was there any major challenges that you ran into when you were doing this research that kind of made you think or have to get a little creative? Oh, yes. Lots, lots of that. One (laughs) example with the dairy would be, as you know, we are now have, um, you know, dairy cows that are bred to terminal, sort of terminal sires. So Angus type. um, So they might have offspring that now don't have dairy markings. So they show up in a feed yard and they're going to have, they're not going to be labeled as dairy cattle. They're going to be labeled as black and not necessarily as dairy. So I spent probably a good couple days trying to pull out what I thought was all the black cattle that were dairy sires based on who was, who was putting them in the feed yard, like it was a dairy, which turned out to be a really challenging task because not all producers who are dairies, of course, name themselves dairies. And mm-hmm. some of it, it's, it's tricky, but in the end, it was really unsatisfying because <laughs> I think I only pulled out, I want to say like 3000 head or something. I know there must be more. So, but I had a really, they were somehow getting marked the right way. I think otherwise. So I don't think I had that level of error in the data, but, but, um, Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, and then the, I guess, you know, the other sort of surprise, which I sort of knew, but now having numbers to show it is how few cattle are really direct marketed or even going so that that's where a producer is selling directly to a uh, processing facility or directly to a consumer. And it's less than, say, 2%. Like, a number of producers participate in that, like 13% mm-hmm. of them will have some retained ownership all the way through, but it's a, it's only a small number of head. So, you know, many producers will keep one or two animals for their own consumption. So they're of that 13%, which is still small, but only 1%, less than 2%, one to 2% of the total number of cattle are direct marketed. That's, wow. that's very, very interesting. Yeah. Sometimes we hear that uh, oh, so this market has increased twice in the past, I don't know, couple of years, but it increased from half to one and a half or something like that. Yeah, it's still it's small. small. That's interesting. And, 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 the, and then, then, of course, in my opinion, the implications of this are that right now we have a system that really relies on transportation, sales yards, and feed yards to support our rangelands. That's mm-hmm. that should to me is clear from this data. And you know, that's not to say there couldn't be a different a different system, but it would be an overall haul, I mean, completely redoing. It's not just some where some producers are gonna hold animals longer. It's it's the system's not set up like that. And and the producers are able to take advantage of and meet their conservation objectives. That was really clear in the, particularly in the interviews um, that, you know, producers were really geared towards recognizing that they would move their cattle 
um, including selling their calves to which was helping them keep feed meat conservation objectives. That, yeah, that, that will be my, my next question. But I, I like that your point is we are, let's say, a big industry and each uh, segment has its importance on the whole system. Each one, like the, the finishing phase has its importance. Like, so it's, it's very important. And so you mentioned about the conservation. Uh, and how do you see the importance of cattle on the conservation? Like when you had your first idea on those 17 acres and how do you yeah. see the, the producer seeing that, uh, like cattle can actually help like on those, on these conservation, uh, plans, I would say. Yes. Yeah, so I'm, you know, specifically work where in California's Mediterranean, uh, annual rangeland. So, and that's where these, you know, there are there are advantages to grazing in other ecosystems, but you know, the one that I looked at specifically are Mediterranean annual rangelands that have a large number of threatened and endangered species. And this this the the the, the reason for this is because you know these grasslands are dominated by non-native annual plants, grasses and forbs that came from Europe and do really well under, you know, they evolved under, under all kinds of management in Europe. And so they just took off in California and, and frankly do really well under drought, under fire, under uh, grazing, no grazing, you name it, they do well. And, and the role of cattle is really controlling, controlling them, not, not, you know, often it gets talked about as sort of limiting competition. It's it's not, I don't think that's a really great way to, to understand it. It's more about controlling the biomass, controlling the thatch that they produce, controlling the height of these plants, because many of our endemic species are, uh, may have been in, you know, forblands where the, where the plants were really short. And many of them, um, and even had more bare ground. And so uh, these annuals are really good at filling up all the space. And so um, grazing provides a really important role in controlling that biomass for them. And so in my findings where I looked at um, US Fish and Wildlife Service listing documents to see what they said about grazing um, of species in California, first of all, I found that 51% of the species in California are found in habitats with grazing. And of these, um, uh, a large percent of 59% of these have positive benefits from, from documented positive benefits from livestock grazing. Um, most of the threats have to do with it being overutilized, overgrazed, you know, and then that has to do with even how the the, the rules written. So if, it, if a plant might be stepped on, an animal burrow might be stepped on, that's a threat to the species, even though that may or may not actually be a, you know, threaten the entire species, but it's, it's, it's considered a threat. So, um, and, and of course, if you are going to, if a, if a habitat's going to be overutilized, then, you know, many things will suffer, including the endangered species. Um, but just as sort of a counterpoint to that, I think 
you know, as I, as I mentioned, some of the, the, what I did was interview ranchers and I, and I just wanted to share a couple of quotes with you that I think sort of highlight um, how, how ranchers think about conservation. Um, so I have no directive for conservation, but as all cattlemen, I convert grass to beef. So we need to manage grass. I manage it public and private all the same to keep grass. I, I graze all grasslands public, public and private. Similarly, if you take care of the land, it takes care of you. So uh, generally you will hear from them a strong ethic in wanting to do good grazing management. And in some, and in some of them clearly recognize the role with endangered species. Um, I take cattle off to rest the pasture during the summer. My grazing is compatible with California red-legged frog, fairy shrimp, and the giant garter snake. I do not overgraze. I have no conservation restrictions, but I keep it the best I can. According to the NRCS biologist, that's the Natural Resources Conservation Service biologist, it remains a good habitat for red-legged frog, tiger salamander, and San Joaquin kit fox. I sold my cattle, he's talking about, later than usual because I had excess feed, but there was no impact to conservation. I don't like to graze to the ground. That's good. That, yeah, that's really great. Let's show the care that those people have to the land. And again, I know there are a lot of people doing that up in Davis, but we can show that we are part of the solution and not as a problem when we talk about conservation as well and many other things that we get blamed. We, as I'm saying, we as a cattle industry, I would say, mm -hmm. blamed for when we talk about environmental issues. That's that's amazing. Yeah, I, I would like to mention, because I, I feel like that is one thing that sort of in my area drives some of what I feel needs to be put out there is, you know, I, I don't know how strong this voice is outside of the Bay Area, but definitely in the Bay Area, there's a huge push for replacing the omnivore diet with a plant-based diet, having, you know, cultured or synthetic meat, and it's, you know, being promoted as a solution. And in fact, um, you know, and, and, and being promoted by some really um, big names, like, you know, Bill Gates said uh, in, this was in March of 2021, all rich countries should move to 100% synthetic beef to cut greenhouse gas emissions driving climate change. And he's suggesting regulations could be used to, to shift the, the demand. Um, and other researchers are really focused on this idea that grazing, that cattle, uses too much land. And if you look at the numbers, the reason they're able to say it uses too much land is really because of this land where the cattle are grazing. And so I think there's this huge disconnect of understanding, you know, what, how this land is being used. You know, it's not like this land that was supporting the Santa Cruz tar plant or these tiger salamanders would be farmed instead. Um, you know, it is, it, it's being managed for habitat with livestock grazing. So, you know, to calculate that as a land use that then supports claims that it uses too much land is, uh, a is, is quite misleading and also very detrimental I, I, to 
future conservation. Mm-hmm. Um, so there needs to be a thought of, you know, that's not to say that all grazing is good grazing and all, all land should be grazed. I will mention that in my findings, you know, we did find benefits in every ecosystem type in California, some species benefiting from livestock grazing with the exception of alpine, you know, where there was no species benefiting from grazing. Yeah. And now, although there's not many endangered species there either. So, Um, but yeah, this, this idea that, that uh, somehow the system can be replaced and we'll save ourselves um, in terms of land use is, is, is a, is a, would be very detrimental in California specifically to conservation. Great. No, thank you. Thank you for doing that work. Uh, we, yeah. we as, as an industry, I think we, uh, we appreciate that. And it's, it's good that you are doing that. It's good to hear that, uh, that we need that information. And more than anything else, we need that. And it's, it's really good. Yeah, so, that's great. Um, so just to kind of finish up here, um, we were talking about this earlier. You finished up your PhD this past December, so congrats to that. But what's what's next with um, going forward related to this sort of research for you? Um, well, I think continuing to s- sort of increase the understanding of livestock's role in meeting our conservation needs and you know um I, I what we were i feel like this sort of work helps provide some evidence and some data to sort of support you know what it, what what we need to make that happen and as as an example of where there's opportunity i mean i think in the state there's a couple of places now we have had lots of initiatives towards uh, looking at both resilience, fuels management, and now conservation in the 30 by 30 on what is being framed as natural and working lands. And I think that statement needs to be reconsidered to be there's natural, some lands that are natural, maybe have any work on them, but really it's natural working lands is the landscape that I work on. They're not separate, uh, separated thing. And then working lands often refers to farmland anyways in, in, there, in there. So I think, uh, you know, that just sort of illustrates a continuing sort of lack of understanding, which just highlights the need for information, data to be further shared and understood. I mean, a lot of the public agencies that I work with have, have a, who are the, the boots on the ground who are trying to manage every day. They clearly have an understanding of the value that the ranchers, the rancher stewardship, the grazing is providing them in terms of meeting their conservation objectives. It's harder for them even to sometimes share that up their leadership chain and, and, and let alone with the public who is being barraged with messages that are really counter to that. Mm-hmm. Great. So 
Last quick question, Sheila. How can we find this work, uh, our producers or people who are listening to us? You you mentioned our past episode about your Bay Area Rangeland website. Uh, is there any other place or they can reach out to you? How can people find this? Nice uh, yeah, they can reach out to me. I, I'm, you're, you're making me realize that I haven't probably put these uh, papers on my website. <laughs> my latest work so but I do have a series called understanding working rangelands which does cover some of this um, not the specific data that that is more detailed now but sort of sets some of the stage for it um, that is on that is online um, it's a series of UCANR um, fact sheets that talk about you know one benefits of grazing difference between sheep cattle, and goat grazing. Uh, I have one called Cows Need Water Too, talks about their use of water and their benefit of ranchers managing, maintaining stock ponds. Um, and the ranch economics a bit, so. That's nice, that's great. That's good, good to hear that. Okay, Sheila, so. Thank you once again. It's it's nice to hear. Uh, Brooke, you have any final questions? Anything else? No. Okay, so Sheila, thank you again. Uh, there were two very, very nice episodes. Uh, we appreciate your accepting our request and, and joining us here today. Uh, do you have any final message, anything else? No, I'm good. <laughs> okay, so thank you again. Thank you, thank you. Uh, who are listening to us as well. To have questions, comments to us or Sheila, please send an email to kettlecallucd at gmail.com. Call if just one L. And if, again, anything else, all of these episodes are going to be transcribed in our monthly newsletter. You can subscribe to it in the description of this episode. It's free and available to everyone uh, uh, who wants to, to have this information. So thank you very much, and don't forget that it's always a good time for a kettlebell.